Very good. Welcome again, everyone. So we'll begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle within us the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of thy faithful, grant by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady of Knock, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, <clears throat> we are moving to the second part of our uh, kind of exploration of the spiritual warfare of the flesh. Again, we were saying that there are three enemies of God and humanity. The flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh meaning simply our fallen human nature. So last week we were talking about the first of the threefold concupiscence, which comes from the first uh, letter of St. John, the pride of life. And we were looking at three of the seven deadly sins. We were looking at pride itself. We were looking at envy. And then we were looking at anger. Now we're moving into the concupiscence of the flesh. Okay. So uh, the concupiscence of the flesh, what is it? First of all, it is the excessive love of sensual pleasures or the disordered kind of like misguided love of sensual pleasures. So a word first about pleasure. Some things are enjoyable. They just are. And that's not a bad thing. Eating, drinking, and relaxing, for example, uh, God made those things pleasurable. And it's all right to enjoy the pleasure of those things. But uh, I think that uh, if we are really honest with ourselves, we can see that we're set up actually to excessively love the pleasure that those things give us. So I love this line uh, from a book of spiritual theology that I just want to share with you. So uh, it goes like this. The body itself labors under a softening languor, a delicate and responsive sensitiveness that craves relaxation through the senses, quickens them, and wets the keenness of their ardor. Man so cherishes his body that he forgets his soul. He is led to pamper his body at every turn. Well, ain't that the truth? <laughs> Maybe not now in Lent. Hopefully you're really on your A game at Lent, but I think we're set up. We have an inclination towards this, right? Craving um, the relaxation through the senses. Um, and then uh, we can pamper ourselves at every turn. And we can so be concerned about the pleasures, uh, the kind of sensual pleasures, or even our health or things like that, that we can actually forget the matters of our soul. I remember a religious sister who has since gone to God, Lord of mercy on her. She was wonderful. But she was a missionary here in Ireland. And she was telling me, having worked in the jungles of Ecuador for like seven or eight years, she said to me once, <laughs> she said, do you know what people keep asking me? I said, what? She said, they keep asking me, are you comfortable? Sister, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable? She goes, oh, all this comfort, she said. Too much comfort, she said, is bad for your soul. And I was like, hmm, that's true. That's very true. She was able to see that and 
you know, just see kind of that in our particularly very affluent, relatively affluent Western world. Um, that's, that's definitely a thing. Comfort is a big thing for us. Now there are different types of sensual pleasure and we're going to be looking at each at, at three different types, right? Three different types of sensual pleasure that we can love to excess. We can love it too much or love it in the wrong way. So first of all, when we excessively love and indulge in food and drink, it's called gluttony. When we excessively love and indulge in the pleasure of sex, it's called lust. And when we excessively love rest, it's called sloth. Although there's a bit more to sloth than that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But those are the three deadly sins that, are, that fall under the category of the concupiscence of the flesh. So the general way that we address these, uh, these sins, these like disordered or like um, unhelpful tendencies is by denying ourselves in what's called mortification. So in Lent, we're kind of in the middle of that right now, the season of mortification. So we deny ourselves absolutely, in other words, at all times, uh, the things that are displeasing to God, that are sinful, right? And then we, uh, those pleasures that are not themselves sinful, but that can kind of like lead us towards that direction, um, we also deny ourselves. And even sometimes, like pleasures that are absolutely fine, things that are enjoyable and that are good, occasionally we deny ourselves those things too, like during the season of Lent, like when we fast, right? It's not as though we're saying that the things we're giving up are bad, they're not bad, but we're denying ourselves those things that we could enjoy otherwise in order to strengthen our wills and help us to grow in freedom. And the deepest motivation we can't forget, right? We can't forget that in this battle that is spiritual warfare, what, what it is that we're truly fighting for. We're not against pleasure as though it were bad in and of itself. It isn't. Our ultimate goal is to be united in love with God. He has united us to himself in our baptism. And that union with him grows. We've learned that over the last, the last session, especially looking at the three stages of the spiritual life. Our union with God grows. It grows deeper. But one of the ways that it does grow deeper is we have to fight against the sinful inclinations of our fallen human nature. St. Paul talks about this especially. And if you want to, to do a little bit of extra reading... Uh, if you go to Romans, the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, uh, chapter 8, especially the first part, verses 1 through 17. Romans chapter 8, 1 through 17. And you'll see him explain about the life of Christ and how that means leaving behind uh, the self-indulgence that marked our life before we were disciples. Okay, so we're going to look at those three different types of sensual pleasure. Which, can, which we can love in the wrong way or love to excess, love too much. The first is gluttony. He said as he took a drink. <clears throat> so gluttony is the excessive love of the pleasure that food or drink gives us or where we love it 
love that pleasure as an end in and of itself. So we, where we eat or drink because it makes us feel good, right? So God made eating and drinking pleasurable, right? Amen? Amen. Very much. Uh, it's impossible not to enjoy it. But you can see how, again, we can love that pleasure in a misguided way or in a way that's excessive. So the main purpose, the main function of eating and drinking is giving us strength, keeping us alive, and helping us to, to grow and to be healthy. If we start to eat and drink because it is enjoyable, not just enjoying it, but because it is enjoyable, if that's the reason why we're eating and drinking, it becomes a disorder. In other words, it becomes like a, a misguided way of living. And that emphasis on that pleasure that eating or drinking can, can bring alone, that pleasure alone, can lead us to love it excessively. So when you think gluttony, I'll tell you what I think. I wonder what you think. I think eating too much, right? But we've already learned that gluttony involves not only eating, but also drinking, right? The pleasure that both eating and drinking gives us. Well, you'll be maybe surprised to know that in our tradition coming from St. Gregory uh, and then St. Thomas Aquinas, there are five ways actually that we can fall into gluttony. So <clears throat> ready yourselves for this. First, by eating before we need to. In other words, between meals, snacking. Number two, by seeking only the finest of foods that suits our sense of taste. Third, by spending too much money on food. The fourth one is the one that we would maybe most easily associate with gluttony, which is just eating too much, plain and simple. And the fifth way is by <laughs> eating greedily in the manner of an animal. <laughs> <laughs> so so absolutely doing the dog on it you know like really just going to town on something right so those are five ways that we can be uh that excessive love of the pleasure that eating and drinking gives us can kind of manifest itself by snacking excessively in between meals right by being unable to be hungry by seeking only the finest of foods that suit our taste, the enjoyment that that taste gives us, where we seek only those finest foods, and by spending too much money on food, very common, obviously, in the kind of restaurant-saturated, uh, like, Western world, eating too much and then eating in, like, a kind of a rushed, greedy kind of way. So it's important to say now that, like, not all of these things or the ways that we can uh, kind of fall to gluttony, not all of them are grievous sins. Not all of these are mortal sins, okay? Some of these are more minor, obviously, right? Um, but we can actually, like, uh, we can actually be gluttonous, love the, the pleasures of food and drink, be gluttonous to the point where it does actually, like, slip into grievous sin. So it does when... Uh, it keeps us from doing our duties, like the duties of our faith, uh, or 
our duties when it comes to like our state of life, like our families or me as a priest. So for example, like if we were to spend like large amounts of money that actually like negatively affects our family life or where it causes us to sin in some other really grievous way. So we think of like drunkenness, obviously, right? Uh, Or we can think about how maybe drinking to excess or eating to excess can lead to other things too, like um, kind of a unchastity. You know, like you noticed how, like if you have just a couple of drinks, you know, you might kind of talk in a way that you wouldn't talk if you, if you hadn't had a couple of drinks. Um, or where, again, we can loosen our tongues and we can, uh, we can fall into gossip or we could fall into like slandering other people or kind of uh, doing damage to their reputations. Or, yeah, engaging in other kind of like just immodest conversations. On the other hand, it's venially sinful when we just eat or drink in a way that's improper in all those different ways, but where we just do that simply in a way that's improper yet without falling into like grave excess. Okay. So how do we fight gluttony? Right. Uh, The first thing that is recommended is that we have the right intention when eating or drinking. And we kind of remember that its primary purpose is to keep us alive and healthy So we want to, when we eat or drink, do it with a spirit of gratitude to God for giving us our daily bread. And we also want to do it with a spirit of love, like putting our renewed strength that like this nourishment gives us, putting that strength at the service of God and other people. The second thing, so that's the kind of having the right intention. The second thing that we want to do when we eat or drink is to do that with moderation. So if the primary purpose of eating or drinking is to keep us alive and healthy and you know, the it's enjoyable, but that's only like secondary, uh, then we want to eat accordingly. We want to eat moderately the things that are going to like keep us healthy basically. And then third is we go back to that practice of mortification. So right intention, moderation, and then mortification. So another way of saying, it's another way of saying self-denial. So uh, here's a couple of like practical things, like occasionally saying no to foods or drinks that we really like, which are useful, but aren't necessary for us. So occasionally saying no to those things that we kind of would like. You can even do this like in a very, and it's good to do this in a very hidden way, a way that doesn't draw attention to it, but is just something that maybe is between you and God. Uh, my former spiritual director would often say like, um, if you normally have like two cups of, or two spoons of sugar in your tea, have just one or have none. No one else is going to notice that except you, but it's some little act of self-denial uh, that you can, that you can engage in that again, like uh, helps you not to be just chasing after the pleasure of eating or drinking. Another good practice, which I never thought of before, but it it makes a lot of sense, is uh, recommended is uh, eating a little of something that you don't like. It's another another good one too. You know, I'd prefer not to have that. I'd normally leave that to the side of my plate. Like, oh no, just eat it. (laughs) Um, 
Now, just a word about feasting, because we're Catholic, right? And so, like, one of the things that we do really well, actually, is feast. So, how does feasting kind of work into all of this? Well, feasting is not just about eating all the things that we really love, sort of blowing out all of the good resolutions that we've made and uh, really, like, um, I don't know, uh, <laughs> you know, sticking our faces into the trough, right? Uh, it's not an excuse for eating excessively, feasting. What is it? It is, feasting is a foretaste of heaven. A foretaste of heaven. Heaven is described as the marriage feast of the lamb. So remember our ultimate goal in the spiritual life is that union of love with God. Here's a beautiful quote from a contemporary spiritual author. I just want to read this to you just about feasting. This is how God wants us to see heaven, she writes. As the people of God, feasting without restraint on his presence. Drinking in the Trinity's beauty, goodness, truth, and love to the point of holy intoxication. Fasting teaches us about our hunger, our dependency, our need for Christ. Feasting, understood in the light of faith, teaches us about answered prayers, about a God who fills our emptiness and satisfies our hunger beyond our greatest imaginings. It foreshadows the great feast to come, wetting the appetite of all who partake in it for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why Christ's first followers feasted. They feasted in anticipation of that ultimate, ultimate feast, and that's why Christians continue to feast. I just thought that was beautiful. You know, it's remembering like the, the great goal of our lives, the great hunger that is within us, which isn't for bread or drink or whatever, but like the, the hunger that we have for God himself and uh, our feasting, our, um, our enjoying those things, letting those not be a, an opportunity to kind of like drag us down to become more like uh carnal and and like animals but rather like those they're opportunities for us to lift our minds to god so we enjoy those things like in moderation you know the good things and that when we feast but it's meant to lift our minds and not pull them down okay so now we move to lust right what is lust lust is the misguided or excessive love of sexual pleasure so there's a pleasure that God has written into sex, which is good, and it can be enjoyed by couples in marriage. But when we start to think of the meaning of sex as being principally about the pleasure, then we miss the meaning God actually wrote into it, and we run into problems. So let's look at this meaning, kind of the, the, the meaning. It's quite a noble understanding of, uh, of sex that we have as disciples of Christ. Human beings are not simply animals. Therefore, human sexuality is not just biological. It involves, and this is quoting the catechism, human sexuality involves the innermost being of the human person as such. It's a nobler thing than the simple biological reproduction of animals. In their physical intimacy, 
as husband and wife, the couple, this is again, quoting from the catechism, gives themselves to one another as a sign and pledge of a spiritual communion. That spiritual communion is what we call marriage. Jesus has elevated this spiritual communion in which a man and a woman give themselves to one another without reserve, without holding back. He has, Jesus has raised this to the level of being a sacrament. That means that it gives couples a grace. It strengthens them. And it points beyond itself, the couple, the married, the married couple, the relationship points beyond itself to the very mystery of God as a communion of love, the Holy Trinity, and also the love that God has for his people and that bond, that covenant, uh, that communion God has established with his people. That's how elevated an understanding that we have, that Christ has given us about marriage and sex. So therefore, marriage has two, we can say, primary purposes. The first is having children. And the second purpose is the strengthening of the bond of the couple. Now, where we seek to erase either of those objectives, where we seek to erase them in a direct way, or where we run after just the pleasure of sex and kind of forget about that deeper meaning, is where we run into all sorts of problems. So excessive or misguided love of the pleasure that sex gives leads to impure thoughts and impure actions, we could say, right? So first of all, the thoughts. I think it's safe to say that most adults have had impure thoughts pop into their minds occasionally. It happens. It happens to most everybody, I think. When they're not directly willed, it's not like we conjure them up, let's say. They're not a sin, provided that we don't consent to them and indulge in like fantasy about them, basically. In fact, those involuntary thoughts that just kind of like pop into your head can actually be an occasion where we um, grow in self-mastery by, by saying no and by uh, turning away from those away from those things as like a, a, an inappropriate like running after the pleasure that sex gives. Uh, where the problem comes in is when we kind of like foster that, that those kind of fantasies, like, you know, and Jesus talks about this as well. You remember in the, uh, in the gospels where Jesus is taught, uh, Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said it's in the sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you that anyone who, uh, looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Where we seek to objectify other people, we reduce them just to an object that is for our pleasure in our imagination or memory. That's where problems come in and where we need to confess those actually, where we intentionally do that or we engage our will in that. Okay. Then you have the actions, right? So that's thoughts Then you have actions. So, there are actions which are sinful, which are misguided uh, as well, because they misuse the gift of sexuality 
seeking again to eliminate one of the either primary or the secondary purposes or the meaning of sex. So in other words, having children or the good of the couple. Uh, what happens is when we, again, consciously and we ourselves seek to eliminate that, we strip sex of its meaning, of the depth of meaning, and we make it into something less than what it actually is. And often we can make uh, the people into less of what they actually are or treat them in a way that is beneath their, their dignity. So, for example, any sexual activity outside marriage is a misuse of sexuality. Why? Because it doesn't contribute to an authentic bond of the couple, binding them together in a way that is exclusive and for life. So that's like the sec that secondary good of marriage, the bond, the bond of the couple. It doesn't actually contribute to that. Or sexual activity within marriage, which closes the door where we're kind of closing the door intentionally ourselves on the possibility of a child intentionally eliminates one of those two ends of marriage, the first one. And it robs sex again of its God-given meaning. So that includes uh, sexual activity that is uh, closed to life between a couple where that's done like to prevent pregnancy is sometimes used as a substitute, I should say for natural sex to prevent pregnancy and also like contraception. Then you can, because of like uh, modern technology, we're able, technologically, we're able uh, to, uh, to isolate the procreative element of sex. And so to um, seek to eliminate the, the bonding between two exclusively and in a way that is, again, divorcing it from the bond of marriage. Uh, able to focus just on the procreative. So like, that's why uh, we don't, uh, why we regard IVF as being sinful, for example, is because again, it strips sex from, it strips sex of its full meaning, basically. So even within marriage, it's important to honor the twofold purpose of sex as part and parcel of this rich meaning with which God has endowed it. And it's important that we not see it primarily as a thing that just is enjoyable, although it is fine to enjoy it. But that attitude where we see sex uh, primarily as something that is just enjoyable can create tension between a couple. It can foster a kind of self-centeredness and even resentment when, for instance, you know, uh, one person within the couple um, is like really looking for intimacy like that. And the other person is just not able or not ready or whatever. Uh, when it's simply about the pleasure that I can get from it, if that's sort of the, the main focus, you can see how that introduces like a, it can introduce a tension and a division within a couple. When, what is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a beautiful and self-giving expression of love. Okay, so fighting lust. How do we fight against this disordered or excessive love of the pleasure that sex can give? So the first is to stand strong in the truth, right? So 
it is necessary to fight for purity and it's possible to actually grow in it. So in addition to like knowing the, what basically one of the things is the first things is to um, like to, to really um, to have firmly in our minds, these truths, right? That not only can, can we lose our souls by sexual sin, but we remember also that the truth is that we are living temples of the Holy Spirit and we have the all holy God present within us. We also know that a healthy self-mastery means that a couple will be more free from self-centeredness, free to love their spouse better, or that someone will be better able to love their spouse, their future spouse, I should say, if they're not married yet, or with that self-mastery, which is what we call chastity, be able to say yes to a future religious vocation. So purity is possible. For us alone, uh, it is impossible because we're weak. But when we lean on God's grace and when we make cooperate with that and make like a good effort ourselves, God leads us to victory. And perhaps over time. It's important to remember also this truth that in our world, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the world, but in our world, we are very much affected by a very different understanding of what sex is about. Purity is not unhealthy. Our culture is kind of saturated really with sex. And it has a misguided or a, it's, it's, it's off about like what its meaning is. So much so that it laughs at the likes of virginity or it regards what is just self-control kind of self-mastery and freedom as being an, the same thing as an unhealthy repression. The virtue of chastity is simply this. Again, this is a quote from the Catechism. It is the successful, successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. It's simply not to be divided. It's simply to, be, to have integrity, to be united. To live our lives, including like the, the sexual element that all of us have, in such a way where it is in harmony with our spiritual identity as well. So how else do we fight? Those are kind of like important truths to hold in our minds. That's one of the ways, right? Is to sort of like really steep ourselves in the truth. The second way is to uh, avoid near occasions of sin. So being really specific, if you struggle with pornography, Avoid using your phone or your devices after 11 o'clock at night or put a filter on it and or put a filter on it. A good thing. Um, Covenant Eyes is an excellent um, filter that I recommend to people all the time. Do you struggle with a temptation to infidelity? Be honest about your attraction to that person who's not your spouse and end any exclusive friendship that you have with them. 
that's avoiding another like near occasion. You're putting, you're setting yourself up so that you're not uh, putting yourself in, in a position where it's impossible for you to, to do the right thing. Or do you struggle with the temptation to sleep with like a boyfriend or a girlfriend before you're married? How do you avoid like that, uh, that situation where it's nearly impossible for you to say no, don't live in the same house. Or if that's too late, you already are. Um, don't sleep in the same bedroom, right? Because again, maybe nine times out of 10, you'd be fine, but you're just putting yourself in a position where, again, like we're only human, we're only flesh and blood and we're quite weak. And we put ourselves in positions where it's nearly impossible for us sometimes to say no. And so we, we do well to just basically avoid that, to uh, not set ourselves up for failure. We also do things like exercise, custody of the eyes, be aware of like, you know, the, the way that we can like physically foster intimacy with other people. So think of like, uh, do you know people who are like really touchy feely, you know, people who are like, do you know, they like rub your back. It's not so much a thing in Ireland, but like maybe it's more of an American thing, but people like rub your back if they're talking to you or like they'll put their, their hand on your arm or whatever, you know, just be aware of that, 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 like that fosters a kind of intimacy, you know? And again, maybe that's fine with, it's not that you're, not, you're you can't do that, but you gotta be really honest with yourself. If you're attracted to that person and you're not married to them, probably not a great thing to be doing, right? <laughs> again, it's kind of being real honest with ourselves and, you know, not, uh, yeah, not kind of indulging, not leaning into um, what we shouldn't be leaning into. And then pray, uh, real nuts and bolts stuff, go to confession frequently and receive Holy communion frequently. Those things help. They're, they're the sources of God's grace. Okay. The last one that I'll, I'll just mention is sloth. So sloth. Uh, so first of all, let's set it up even before the fall. If you look at the book of Genesis, so even before sin kind of came into the world, Adam and Eve had work to do. They had to tend the garden. So that tells us something about the kind of creatures that we are, about humans, human beings. It tells us that we were actually made and it's good for us to work. Now, can we work to excess? Absolutely. Like a workaholic, workaholism, that's a, it's a thing. Absolutely. That's some people are inclined to. That's a something that is not good, but it's good for us to work. If you think about it, it's only by working that we can grow in some parts of ourselves and realize our potential. Now, the fact that we have a fallen human nature adds another reason why work is kind of important. It's to kind of uh, deal with the problems that, that sin has caused. So is it wrong to rest from our labors? Is it wrong to set aside work uh, and to enjoy the pleasure of rest? Of course not. Absolutely not. It's not a bad thing at all. But what is sloth? Sloth is the excessive love of doing nothing. <laughs> or maybe a fuller explanation is this. It's the tendency that we have within us to avoid effort or hardship 
the tendency we have within us to be idle or apathetic. So there's both a physical and like a spiritual element to this. That's why I was saying it's a little bit more complicated than just simply an excessive love of the pleasure of like um, relaxation. It's more than that. So there are different degrees of sloth. So I'm going to give you some good old archaic words that you can, uh, you can use when criticizing your uh, teenagers or, uh, or maybe your spouse or something. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, if someone, these are degrees of sloth or different kind of like manifestations of sloth. First is you're indolent. Indolent. It's indolent. Indolent is where we take up our tasks, but reluctantly and indifferently. We do our duties, but we do them dragging our feet and we do them without caring that much about them. Okay. What if someone is, here's another one. Someone is a sluggard. <laughs> a sluggard. Sluggard is someone who delays and puts off, they postpone as long as they can whatever duties they have to do. Someone who's lazy is another one, right? Is just someone who doesn't want to do any real work at all. Those are kind of like the, you could say maybe like the natural or like physical manifestations of sloth, but then there's a spiritual sloth, right? And that we can call lukewarmness, lukewarmness. So that's a dislike of spiritual things because of the effort that's entailed in uh, pursuing them. It keeps us from practicing the, like the, the, the parts of our faith that are going to help us to grow, the duties of our faith, or in doing them in a way that's minimalistic. So I'm just going to look at that one for a second because it's by far the, the most dangerous. So how do we actually slip into this lukewarmness? Again, think like a, you know, a real apathy or a cynicism a real, um, like a, a slump where we, we don't want to, to have, we don't want to really engage with um, things that are spiritually good for us. How do we slip into that? It happens when we practice our faith in a way that's negligent. When we do the spiritual exercises, but we do them kind of negligently with lots of voluntary distractions. Like we're there physically in body, but our minds are a million miles away or where we do these things in a way that's kind of like sluggish or, you know, that our hearts aren't in it. What happens? And I don't mean just like a feeling. I mean, like where we're not putting an effort in what happens is the soul is actually deprived of graces. And because we don't have those graces, we're left weaker and anemic, spiritually anemic. And then what happens is, you know, the, those practices, those things that we, we did, they kind of become a tired routine. We stop seeing the point in them, the value of doing them. And so then first we kind of shorten them. We do them in a way that's more minimalistic or we skip them every now and then. And then eventually we just give them up entirely. 
that's the dynamic of sloth, right? And again, the soul is left kind of anemic and weakened and it lacks the energy and the life that we need in order to really engage not only in spiritual warfare, but also just the, the, the work of growing in union with God, union of love with God. So how do we fight against sloth? So we remind ourselves, first of all, it's like holding your minds the, the truths of our faith so that like we need to work for our salvation. Remember the fig tree that Jesus comes across or any, any number of the parables. Jesus emphasizes like that we actually have a part to play. We have to rouse ourselves, rise up and actually um, like we've got to, uh, we've got to really desire and work for the kingdom of God. Remind ourselves also that other people depend on us to, to work both physically and then also to work like on ourselves, to work spiritually. People suffer if we shrink back from those tasks because we're just not up for it because we, we were kind of afraid of hard work. And then also this truth, again, you're holding this, these truths in your mind. Remind ourselves that God has spared no effort for us. He is so deserving of all our love and the best of our effort, the best of ourselves. He deserves the best of us. Practically speaking, so that's, those are holding truths in your mind, reminding yourselves of those truths frequently. And then practically speaking, uh, real frankness in the sacrament of confession and a good confessor that's not just going to like give you a penance and then send you on your way, right? Um, but maybe a, a, a confessor who's going to actually challenge you. And then our souls need nourishment. So go back to those spiritual practices that you might've been doing and then you became kind of half-hearted about them and then you gave them up. So things like mental prayer or examining of your conscience, or here's another one that I really, I really love uh, is the lives of the saints. Read the lives of the saints. The more we put ourselves in the presence of those who are on fire, who are not lukewarm, but who are really committed the more it kind of inspires us, it like blows on the, the, um, the, the coals that are nearly uh, burned out. It kind of blows on them and it, and it uh, stokes that fire again. Uh, a friend of mine, a uh, priest, said that we have to try to, like a fire, right? We have to try to live in an oxen-rich environment, by which he meant we have to live amongst people that are also or at least have some people, some friends that are like that, or to, again, put ourselves, so to speak, in the presence of the saints by reading some of their lives. What are their lives like? It kind of, uh, it speaks to us and it stirs within us the love of God that they had so much. So those are the, the three kind of manifestations of the concupiscence of the flesh, gluttony, lust, and sloth gluttony being the by the way while i'm just recapping this if anyone has any questions please go ahead and now is a good time to them in. 
uh, being an excessive love of pleasure that fast. Again, not wrong to enjoy the pleasures of any of these things, but to to do them, to eat or drink simply for the enjoyment, that's where we run into trouble. Or to the, the pleasure that that's part and parcel of sex. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. To be enjoyed. But can we be inclined to kind of uh, telescope in on that and to make that into the the primary meaning of, of sex? Absolutely. Just look at our culture. It happens all the time. Um, and then uh, sloth is the kind of a, an inclination that we have to uh, ease, uh, to from work, to uh, apathy and cynicism, uh, an inclination that has to be kind of fought as well. So those are the, those are the three concubines of the flesh. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the um, the last one. So we've gone through six deadly strategies, and the next one we're going to look at is another one is avarice or greed, and that's the only deadly sin that's kind of covered underneath the concupiscence of the eyes. Although there's some other things that are involved in it as well. So we'll look at those things next week, and then there's only one. I'll actually be able to look at the, um, that that thing of mortification a little bit more carefully. Um, and then uh, what I hope to do actually is give you just a little sense of the way that we understand um, the human person and especially our souls as Catholics. So the different, what are called the faculties or the powers of the soul and how those things can be like disciplined and sort of made into um, like what God intended them to be. And we can kind of be enjoy more of a, an integrity in ourselves. That's my hope anyway, next week. Look at that greed, uh, avarice, and then we'll look at um, maybe the, just like a, hopefully have a better understanding of like, oh, okay. This is like what we mean when we say our soul and how our soul interacts with like our body and our emotions and all that sort of stuff. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. God bless all of you, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Great stuff. Have a nice week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week.